tuned for Cover to Cover. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Did you hear that last show? Awesome. I can't believe it. I got to get that book. I got to read Second Nature. (laughs) A good book for a change. It's, uh, what is it, New Theory of Consciousness. Now, that's something we need. Oh, I wish I'd been... uh, What is that? Uh, Smarter in my youth. I would have studied the brain. I didn't have the brains to know that it's all about our central nervous system. Was it Gertrude Stein said that consciousness has replaced the soul? I don't know what she meant by that. Anyway, this is uh, Jenny Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is June 24th, 2014. And uh, an old friend of mine this week, took me to task about this radio show, what I call my radio rant. And, you know, I, I like to call this half hour cultural criticism, uh, but that's a little pompous. Now, my friend is a culture vulture, if there ever was one, but she says that I talk too much about film and television and that social justice should be my uh, priority when the world is bleeding and the wounded earth is in such danger from toxic terrorism, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, how, she asks me, can I talk about the movies? And then she <laughs> she has another cup of coffee and she says, oh, well, actually, Game of Thrones is fascinating, you know, the sweep of all that Scenery, she says. It's a travel log. Uh, okay. I took a deep breath and I tried to explain one more time my theory that aesthetics is the mother of ethics. <laughs> Takes a while for that one to soak in, you know, that art uh, can. And it does tenderize young minds. It educates the sensibilities, that is. You know, the brain, our human nature, our second nature. It teaches compassion. You know, it is the religion of humanism. Both Gore Vidal and Orson Welles have some wonderful, uh, <laughs> some wonderful thoughts on how actually the theater is just about the only liberal education that uh, this generation is going to get. And, of course, that was back in the day when it was, uh, what is it, my uh, parents' humanism they were worried about. Anyway, back in the day, I love that phrase. Philip Maldry says it means so many different things to different people. (laughs) Half the time I'm talking about back in the Victorian age. Anyway, for me, back in the day means probably the middle of the 20th century when I went to school. My friend said, okay, okay, it may be true 
that the plays can be progressive. Uh, <laughs> the playwrights, Tony Kirshner, Angels in America. Uh-huh. But then she says, today's mass audience is just hooked on celebrity and glamour and all that shallow stuff. And I agreed that most of what's up there on the screen is... Uh, just cartoons or silly or actually a lot of it's sadistic. I think of all the ten-year-olds watching uh, the <laughs> the barbaric, uh, oh, the golly, Penny Dreadful, I think is the one that knocked my socks off this week. Uh, Eva Green, the actress in Penny Dreadful, has a mad scene that tops the... Uh, the scenes in The Exorcist. I couldn't help but feel terribly sorry for the actress. Kali, uh, I think probably it was a physical ordeal to do what she did. She's possessed, of course, of the devil. Uh, <laughs> Penny Dreadful is the name of those little, um, oh, what were they? They were little, they were magazines, actually, but they passed as little books. And, uh, uh, you know, they turned into the comic books we have today. Little horror stories that the Victorians love to read. Penny Dreadfuls. Uh, still, I don't know. Even even with all the junk and the... Uh, I don't want to call it sadism. I want to call it uh, just obscenity that we have to watch on television. Uh, I I'm still passionate about at least the actors uh, not the scripts always you know my gods in a way are these actors these individuals I think of them as mediums now I couldn't do it I tried to be an actor for many years but turned out I was too self-centered and I started writing plays I wanted to speak for myself I see a lot of interesting actors doing that. They uh, <laughs> write monologues and uh, express themselves. Anyway, for that reason, for the the uh, reason that most of us are too self-centered to project ourselves through the feelings of others, I admire actors because they are willing to do that, to transmute ideas and emotions coming from someone else, to give of themselves, you know, just to show us facets of human beings that we might not otherwise understand. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't help thinking in Penny Dreadful of the joke. Uh, recently, in Penny Dreadful, there's a, a fellow, it's right out of Dickens, actually, uh, all the Victorian writers are in there somewhere. Uh, he He's complaining about the theater in his time. He's running a little theater. And uh, his plays are just penny dreadfuls, these horrible little skits. And he complains that there's nothing around but the new stuff. Ibsen, he says. <laughs> anyway, I, I keep looking for the, what is it, the... Uh, the little, the little glimmers, the thousand points of light, somebody said. Last night I watched Daniel Day-Lewis on cable TV, of course. Uh, he was in a kaleidoscope of different roles. I thought, 
What would a high school student make of this uh, amazing talent, this craft? Uh, you know, his his talent makes his forerunners, all those British boys from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, Raga, you know, makes them seem positively precious, uh, much too uh, elegant. You know, they were show-offs, in fact, although, of course, uh, Laurence Olivier and John Gielgud and all the rest will be revered elders, um, oh, hundreds of years from now, perhaps, but today's theater surprises me over and over. Uh, the performances are so good that I can just overlook, dismiss the mediocre and the downright god-awful, uh, there's so much stuff that if you have any discrimination at all, you know, you can find something. You can find something that even if the script is, uh, let's say, uh, not not mediocre, but uh, downright dumb, you know, a, a great actor can lift it up and give you the, uh, the human essence there. Uh, I'm not talking about stars, uh, not celebrities. I'm talking about actors. There are very few who are both Meryl Streep, say, or Leonardo DiCaprio, actually. His, his uh, performance as Hoover was uh, actually downright, downright real. But anyway, my heart belongs to those with these skills, the Buddha. The Buddha says that virtue is skill in action. Skill in action. Daniel Day-Lewis is so skilled, I never noticed the man. I'm sure he's cool, I mean, as a person. He married Arthur Miller's daughter, after all. But last night, I watched him in four movies. I was switching channels, comparing his styles. Abraham Lincoln, yes, in Lincoln... There's that scene in which he tells his wife, Mary, uh, Sally Fields, she was good. She was good in that uh, film. Uh, he tells her that she has only the choice, the decision to make. Uh, will she help him? Will she aid him in his struggle, which he cannot escape? Uh, will she make his existence more or less difficult <laughs> after all that matrimonial agony I needed to watch him in his romantic role in Last of the Mohicans oh, completely completely romantic especially you know when the 18th century wars are raging uh, I think his long hair was what seduced me uh, uh, then I changed and watched him as that tough kid in my beautiful laundrette. Uh, a gay, what do we call that? It was on the, the channel where they're celebrating gay culture. Uh, <laughs> Daniel Day, there was plays a gay cockney in love with a rich Pakistani. Well, comparatively rich. His accent got to me first, <laughs> just as it did when he played an Irish revolutionary. Then I switched the channel one more time and watched him suffer in The Crucible. You remember Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. He played John Proctor, a sane man in a world 
where witches were real. And Salem was the seat of some serious sadism. Anyway, Arthur Miller, of course, was writing about uh, the the witch hunts of the 1950s, the the years when our... uh, (laughs) Our government uh, was after the commies. Anyway, I was thinking now, maybe that's when Daniel Day-Lewis met Arthur Miller's daughter. Anyway, so I switched back to Lincoln for the last scene because, of course, that's a recent film and it's uh, got the gravitas. Uh, That moment when Lincoln leaves for the theater, he's going, you know to see that play, My American Cousin, dumb little place, going with his good wife, and he forgets his gloves again. And there's a quote uh, Lincoln says when he puts his gloves back on the table. It's time to go, although I would rather stay. Gets me every time. I can't help wondering what Daniel Day-Lewis would do with Shakespeare. I mean, I don't know if he even wants to film Hamlet. Uh, I would put him in The Tempest as Prospero. I think that's his part. Of course, I'm still overwhelmed by Helen Mirren's performance as Prospera. (laughs) What a switch was there. Oh, and the costumes. All the British bests in the other roles. Helen Mirren in The Tempest uh, is a, what do you call it, uh, unique, never happened before kind of, kind of film. I made a list of her roles from the uh, Gun Mall, you know, in The Long Good Friday, remember that one? She played both Queen Elizabeth the first and the second. <laughs> yes. In Elizabeth II, Elizabeth the second, there's that breathtaking scene where she watches the stag all alone, that beautiful stag that we know is going to die and be <laughs> shot by a tourist. She has to look at, at that as well. Her car breaks down in the highlands and she looks out at the deer. I thought of a uh, film like The Deer Park. The whole notion that hunting is kind of hideous, although there are many opinions about that anyway. Her Elizabethan Elizabeth rivals Kate Blanchett's performances. You know, Kate Blanchett played Elizabeth I twice. She gave us very different versions of the virgin, you know, not so virgin, actually. The not so virgin queen, there was a choice in uh, in the first one, the one made in the 90s. She had that choice to cast herself as the holy mother. She looks at a statue of the Virgin Mary and she turns herself into... Not just the Christian virgin, but into the ancient goddess that holds a place in men's hearts. Uh, 
have a friend just came back from Italy and she said that in uh, in her study of the art in Florence, she said there's no, no distinction between the Madonna and the great goddess, ancient goddess. Uh, anyway, anyway, uh, I remembered thinking that uh, she's like all the actors I know. She She's had this range, a couple of films that I'd rather forget, like The Comfort of Strangers. She was um, playing a uh, masochist. <laughs> Christopher Walken has her, um, what is that, um, in his clutches there in Venice, uh, I thought of a movie I'm sure most people have forgotten called Age of Consent. She couldn't have been more than 18 years old. She looked 16. She plays this tough girl, this urchin on the beaches in Australia. She swims out, I think it's near the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, if those scenes were not just erotic, uh, (laughs) then... Then they were primordial. Uh, there was mermaid magic there. In the movie Age of Consent, she inspires the artist James Mason. Yes, he's run off to um, this uh, reclusive hut on the beach there in Australia, trying to get back his inspiration, his old passion for his work. <laughs> She's just fabulous as this uh, tough, pragmatic girl, just just beginning to come into an awareness of herself, of her body. Uh, she she sells the artist fish, eggs, anything lying around. She's saving up to run away. Her grandmother is always asking her for money. Uh, she tells James Mason that she knows models get paid. The movie found an audience uh, back in the day. That is, uh, when Helen Mirren first appeared on the scene. I think that's during the time that she was at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art uh, doing her Shakespeare, her apprenticeship. Uh, anyway, most people love that movie just because of the underwater cinematography you have to remember that movies are a combination of all the arts now actually Age of Consent can be rented I think if you think she's worth it Uh, as I said the irritating films like The Comfort of Strangers the one where she was the masochist in the clutches of Christopher Walken these turned me off for a few years and I thought She's doing just something strange. Uh, White Knights, she played the Russian woman. Never mind. There were some movies where I got the feeling that she was just trying to earn a salary. But recently, uh, she knocked my socks off in a production of The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. You know the play by Tennessee Williams? Back. In the, I think, 50s, they made a movie with Warren Beatty and Vivian Lee. Tennessee Williams said that one was the best movie, uh, well, the movie version of any of his plays. 
in Helen Mirren's new spin on the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. <laughs> Mrs. Stone is overtly erotic. Nothing like Vivian Lee's. Uh, Vivian Lee was always a lady, uh, even when she was a nymphomaniac uh, in real life. Uh, mental problems. Uh, you remember her in Ship of Fools, movie made late in her career. There was a scene where she attacks Lee Marvin. She finds him in her stateroom. And he, he's not looking for her. He's looking for a, a dancer from Jose Limon's uh, troupe. They're on board this ship entertaining the guests. Yes, this ship of fools. And... She's insulted when he <laughs> apologizes for being in her bedroom, saying he was looking for that, you know, that tramp. Uh, her anger, her absolute fury brings to mind that line, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned <laughs> in the next scene. We see him completely battered. Anyway, I digress, as always. My thread today is this attempt to string together the roles of some of these unique actors. Uh, they, they give us themselves. It's their art. What is it we used to say in class, it's a little pretentious, you know, that the body is our instrument, you know, like a violin. It always sounds so, so precious and so silly, but these are the uh, craftspeople who create lives for us to study just as a writer's gift you know gives us characters gives us versions of humanity now, whether it's Madame Bovary or Anna Karenina or Tess of the D'Urbervilles we can contrast and compare lives you know people that we will never know because they are of course uh, not real they exist in the minds of uh the uh, uh, people they, they exist in the uh, minds of the writers you know whether it's Gustave Flaubert or Leo Tolstoy or Thomas Hardy you know tells us all about their place and time uh, actually the movie uh Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, I, I watched it a second and third time just because of Annie Bancroft. She's gone now. She passed away. But uh, this theatrical performance, uh, she explodes with hate for all the conquerors who have wrecked her uh, home, Rome. She feels that the Americans have attacked Italian pride. And she says, Italy is the center, the uh, heart of things, the history, the art, all the beauty. She says, we have everything but money. And she ends referring to the treatment of Mussolini and his mistress. The end of World War II, you may remember some of those horrific pictures, Benito Mussolini hanging upside down in the street. I, I forget the details. I think it was the partisans kind of 
civil war going on there at the end, the end of World War Two. you know, left and right wing adversaries sound familiar? Yes, that's the way it goes, folks, that's the way it goes. Uh, I think of Helen Mirren's uh, spin or interpretation of the role of Mrs. Stone as very, very... 21st century, <laughs> just just the gowns, the jewelry, the screaming yellows. Uh, I I really found that the movie was uh, I wasn't going to say pornographic, but uh, over the top. Uh, Annie Bancroft's role as the procuress, you know, a woman who uh, meets rich American women and find some boyfriends. Uh, that role is one I've always wanted to play. Uh, it was done by Lottie Lenya in the Vivian Lee version. Uh, I think I think that's worth checking out the movie for. Um, I'm trying to remember when it came on cable. Uh, never mind. Actually, on cable I have managed to see several Anna Kareninas and several uh, uh, several versions of not just Tolstoy, Flaubert, and Thomas Hardy, but portraits of women in Victorian England. Uh, I just think I just think that the writers are only beginning to scratch the surface. Most of the writers are men, uh, not realism, but I think well, the essence is of. Um, it was a male perception of a woman's life. Now, I'm waiting for women to start digging into that uh, that place, those psyches. Uh, I want to see what actors can do with those lives. Uh, I think Howard's End, yes, Howard's End with Helena Bonham Carter and uh, Emma Thompson. That would be... Well, it's E.M. Forrester's story, but I think Emma Thompson gives it a, a kind of a, a turn. It makes you see how uh, pragmatic women back in the day could make happy lives for themselves. Anyway, I still think that we can learn from these folks, from these souls. Uh, my next list is going to be a list of all the actors who give us characters that do not live on the page at all. You know, characters with qualities that make them live uh, just because the actor himself or herself brings uh, a soul or a being. Theater folk argue endlessly about whether or not... Uh, we can do this, whether X quality is what matters. Uh, never mind what the playwright had in mind. Uh, we think of all the actors whose presence alone has an effect on us, on our culture. Humphrey Bogart. Yes, he imprinted a whole generation. Their very existence contributes to the meaning of our society. Think of them, Charlie Chaplin, Woody Allen, certainly not an actor, Greta Garbo. It's the woman, not the roles. 
Same for Marlon Brando, Marilyn Monroe. I don't know whether they're archetypes or demigods, but they are a pantheon like the Greek gods. Uh, never mind. Maybe next week uh, I'll be able to dig out. <laughs> dig out a solution if truth and beauty are still dating. Why is it so many of us, so many poets, are still lonely? And why is it so many of our children are still crying? I'll be back on the air next Tuesday at the same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. is in the process of revising its bylaws, the rules under which the organization must be operated. The foundation is considering seven bylaws amendments concerning in-person meetings of the board, the election of station representative directors, proportional reduction in size of the national board, and other amendments. To read the proposed changes, you can visit Pacifica.org. The national board will vote on July 17th. The five local station boards will vote within 60 days of that date. To be approved each proposal must receive a majority vote of the Pacifica National Board and of three of the five stations' boards. Again, for more information, including the language of the amendments, you can visit Pacifica.org. 